I'm Lance Key, co-host of Get Inspired and Innovate, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, did you know that podcasts are a great way to grow your personal and business brand voice? Here's the secret. We all want to feel connected to brands we buy from. What better way to humanize a brand than through sharing your story on a podcast? Kitcaster is a podcast booking agency that specializes in developing real human connections through podcast appearances. If you're an expert in your field, have a unique story to share, or an interesting point of view, it's time to explore the world of podcasting with Kitcaster. You can expect a completely customized concierge service from their staff of communication experts. Kitcaster is your secret weapon in podcasting for business. Your audience is waiting to hear from you. Go to kitcaster.com slash TLLK12 or go to my webpage at stephenmaletto.com slash sponsors. Click on the Kitcaster logo and apply for a special offer just for the friends of Teaching Learning Leading K12. Hey, Steve here, and my podcast, Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, is hosted on Podbean. If you use my affiliate link when you sign up for podcast hosting, you will get one month free. I've been on Podbean for the whole existence of my podcast since November of 2013. In that time frame, I've had nonstop service. I've had easy access to assistance when I needed help. I've been able to upload unlimited pictures and podcast episodes. The dashboard is easy to use, and my Podbean community has grown tremendously. Looking at starting a podcast? Well... Use my affiliate link to get one month free of hosting. Go to my website at stephenmaletto.com slash sponsors and click on the Podbean hosting link to see what plans are offered and choose the one that you like the best. You'll be glad you did. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I've got some awesome news. That's right. Jeremy S. Adams is back and he's got a new book. This is one for the times, a must read, a must share. It's called Hollowed Out, a warning about America's next generation. You don't want to miss this talk. Hey, by the way, it would be so cool if you went to buymeacoffee.com slash Stephen Maletto and uh, made a donation to the podcast. That would be awesome. Thanks for thinking about it. You know, another thing that would be awesome is if you uh, went to stephenmaletto.com slash reviews and uh, left a review for the podcast. Thanks so much. Enjoy the show. Boone Titanium Rings, found on the web at boonrings.com, is an affiliate partner of Teaching Learning Leading K-12. And I'm also a customer. I have this really cool ring that's got these carved pistons and, and stars in it. I love it. They make rings of titanium that are carved, laser cut, and engraved, as well as they have inlays of many types of materials like meteorite, acrylic, wood, carbon fiber, and so many other types. They also have special collections that are incredible designs. One of the top sellers are the Gamer Rings, the Stealth Series, and the Black Zirconium. As a note, they also make earrings, pendants, cufflinks, and for you musicians, they make cool trumpet mouthpieces. Love it. Go to boonrings.com and at checkout, use my code, capital T, capital L, capital L, capital K, number 12, and you'll get 10% off your purchase. So go check them out. I love my ring, and I know that you will love yours. You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. 
Jeremy S. Adams is a high school and university teacher living in Bakersfield, California. He and his writing have appeared in the Los Angeles Times, the Washington Post, the Huffington Post, C-SPAN, the Sacramento Bee, and numerous national education podcasts. Mr. Adams has won numerous accolades for his teaching and writing efforts, including the 2014 California State Teacher of the Year Award, which is Daughters of the American Revolution, the 2012 Kern County Teacher of the Year Award, was a 2013 semifinalist for the California Department of Education's California Teacher of the Year, and was a finalist in 2014 for the Carlston Family Foundation National Teacher Award. He was recognized in 2014 by the California State Senate for his achievements in education. He was a 2018 CSUB or California State University Bakersfield Hall of Fame inductee, the first classroom teacher ever inducted in the history of the school. Jeremy received his bachelor's degree in politics from Washington Lee University and his master's degree in education, curriculum and instruction from California State University Bakersfield, where he was named the outstanding student in the School of Education. He is also an education speaker and has spoken to large education groups and conferences across the country. In addition, Jeremy is the author of Full Classrooms, Empty Selves, The Secrets of Timeless Teachers, Riding the Wave, Teacher Strategies for Navigating Change and Strengthening Key Relationships, and his latest, which is our focus today, Hollowed Out, A Warning About America's Next Generation. By the way, Jeremy previously appeared on Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 episodes 123, which is all about the book, Full Classrooms, Empty Selves, episode 103, The Secrets of Timeless Teachers, and episode 300, Riding the Wave, Teacher Strategies for Navigating Change and Strengthening Key Relationships. Jeremy, it's awesome to have you back on the show. Thanks for uh, joining me and say hi to everyone. Thank you so much for having me again. Uh, again, I'm, I'm wondering if I'm getting a jacket uh, or a gift card. Uh, you know, there's gotta be something if you're, if you're leading the way as far as number of visits. Am, am I the only person who's ever been on four times? I do believe that you are. Yes, I, I have others that were okay. at three, but I believe you're the first to be number four. So maybe I should play some special music. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, something, something. Yeah, absolutely. Or, you know, just a, a simple $50 Amazon gift card. Treat me like I'm a teenager. You know, I can, I can use that. So no, in all seriousness, it's, it's wonderful to be on with you again. Uh, and uh, this is by far uh, my most important book. So I'm, I'm excited to be talking about it. That's awesome. It's, it's great to have you on. And I, this is so cool. I mean, you got uh, four books now and uh, you're a writing machine, man. This is, <laughs> this is cool. And you've, you know, you, you, your books are neat because they're, you, you've got a great writing style and you, uh, you know, you just, you kind of hit on all these good topics. And today the book you've got now is, is a little different and we're going to, we're going to get there in just a minute. Uh, but before we go there, let's start by talking about you. You're a teacher and a writer and a speaker. Uh, you're a father and a husband. How do you make time to write? Well, I mean, it depends on the project. Uh, for this project, which, you know, I, th I think you're going to hear me say this a lot, this is the most important project of my life. Uh, when I started teaching, excuse me, when I started writing 20 years ago, uh, I wrote in order to be able to write a book like this one. Um, and so, you know, every book has had a different process. Uh, the Secrets of Timeless Teachers, I wrote, and, you know, after summer school was over every day in my, you know, classroom that was 95 degrees. Uh, you know, I wrote Riding the Wave at night after my kids went to sleep. And I wrote this one early in the morning uh, in the middle of a pandemic uh, where, uh, you know, it was 5.30 to 7.30 every day. I gave myself two hours of writing and research every day. Um, and then at night uh, when they would go to bed, I would, I would read what I wrote in the morning and make changes. And so, uh, you know, when you're a dad uh, and, and, and you have three active kids and you have a wife who's a professional who's, you know, really, really busy with her work, the short answer is you write when you can. Uh, you write whenever your life allows it. Uh, and so, you know, I mean, at 5.30 in the morning, that's my time, Steve. That's nobody else's time. That's my time. 
Nobody tells Jeremy Adams what to do at 530 in the morning. So uh, I, I used it to write uh, this book, which I've been dreaming about writing for a long time. So uh, there was no lack of, of motivation. Very cool. So now I got to ask, because this is your fourth book and you, they all are unique in their topics. As a writer talking about your profession, do you ever have trouble getting past the blank page? I mean, do you sit down and go, uh... No, I, you know, I don't uh, it, for a very simple reason. And that is because I don't write if I don't have anything to say. Uh, you know, it, I think what you're describing is somebody who is a professional writer. That's all they do. They have to write three opinion pieces a week or, you know, they have to get out a book a year on something. And, and I'm not like that. I, I, I write when I have something that I want to share or a perspective that I want to offer um, or an argument I want to make. And if I don't feel that urge, then I, I don't do it. I mean, I've always been very clear in, in my professional life that I am a teacher who writes and not the other way around. And, and it's always going to be that way. I mean, I could, again, trust me, I really, really, really desperately want Hollowed Out to, to be a bestseller. I want it to, I want it to be widely read. I, I think it's frankly the most important conversation we should be having in this country today is the fact that we are producing a hollowed out generation of young Americans who aren't going to find happiness and aren't going to be able to participate in the process of self-government if things don't get better. Now, if you can tell me a more important topic than that, Go, feel free, but um, you know. But I, I feel passionately uh, about this subject. So you know, because I'm a teacher and I, because I'm a father, uh, if I don't have anything to write, I can still fill my time quite easily. Let me tell you, there's plenty of minutia in my life. That's awesome, I, and I appreciate you sharing that because I got one more writing question, and, and then we're sure. going to get into uh, hollowed out. I, I, once the idea has come to you, do you develop an outline, or do you start and see where your idea takes you? You know, I, I, it depends. Um, for this book, this book has been marinating in my mind for years. Uh, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, typically if, if I have a big topic, I will think about it for a long, 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 long time before I even start thinking about how to write it. I'll really let it germinate uh, in, in my brain quite a bit. Um, and, and with this book, this book was no different. Um, you know, I, I remember uh, very well, um, you know, kind of when I had the idea for this book. But, you know, a lot of these concerns in the book, I, I've, I've been noticing for, for quite a while. Um, actually, my very first book, uh, the way we met was through my first memoir called Full Classrooms, Empty Selves. And I expressed some of kind of the, you know, the embryo, if you will, of these concerns I have. And they have just accelerated and magnified in the last decade, which is kind of what gave birth to Hollowed Out, which is, a, again, not a memoir at all, a, a very different book. It's essentially an alarm bell. Um, but, uh, so, you know, a lot of these issues I've been thinking about for a, a very, very long time, uh, before I really start to put pen to paper. Excellent. I, I appreciate you sharing. I appreciate you going down that path. Cause that's one thing I really haven't done, done when we've talked is really talk about that writing process. And so I appreciate you yeah. talking about that. So your newest book is called hollowed out a warning about America's next generation. It's published by regenerating publishing and, uh, you know, this is awesome. It's a completely different book. We're like, you oh, it, yeah, referenced. It, it, it is a very opinionated book uh, for sure. And uh, you know, one of the things that uh, I wanted to get you to talk about is, do you remember what the original idea was that made you go, I have to write this? Well, yeah. I mean, I remember the moment, uh, you know, I remember, uh, I remember driving down the road and I know that for a lot of people who are listening to your podcast, are like, well, that's not very exciting. You know, there was no burning bush. Uh, there was no mountaintop. There was no symphony. There was no child's smile. No, it was, it was, I was driving down the road. But I mean, if you think about it, though, that's, that's actually pretty amazing nowadays. I mean, we live in this era where we are obsessed with our devices, where we are constantly, our brains are constantly occupied 
with something, right? With a screen, with scrolling, with reading, with watching. And yet all the great insights of life typically happen when your mind is free to wonder, right? Uh, when, it, when it's free to roam. Now, you know, the most famous scientific story in the West is, is you know, Sir Isaac Newton sitting under a tree when the apple hits him because his mind was wondering, right? And so, you know, that happens a lot. Uh, a lot of young people uh, don't know what I'm talking about when I talk about that creative moment uh, of, of making a connection. And what I realized was almost all of the things that really worried me about our young people today, a lot of the things that I, I, I was starting to notice and saying, well, that's that's different or that's concerning or that's that's not right or why are you acting that way or why are you spending your time that way or or why are you saying that? Um, what I started to realize was that all of these things had something in common. Uh, and, and that's kind of where I developed my big theory about the fact that young Americans are, are hollowed out uh, of the habits, the values, and the behaviors that tend to lead to a full and meaningful and flourishing life. And that's what they have in common. Um, and again, I know we're going to talk about that a lot here in a minute, uh, but there, there was that aha moment. All of these things I was worried about separately, I actually realized that they were connected. Gotcha. So very cool. And well, it, it kind of sounds like you had a burning bush or something going on there. Yeah. <laughs> I wish, I wish I'm, I'm neither a prophet, a philosopher or a poet. I'm not that lucky. <laughs> well, you definitely had some inspiration because it got you fired up and it, and uh, it did. You, you had a, you just produced this book and it's out there and it's uh, getting some great attention. So, so let's, let's make sure people understand what you mean when you say, because you talked about it there a little bit, let's let's yeah. give them a definition of what you mean by hollowed out. What specifics go with that? Well, what, what I'm talking about is, you know, first of all, human beings, uh, you know, we we fancy ourselves to be these uni unique, sophisticated 2021 men and women. Uh, and yet, uh, at the end of the day, Steve, I think human beings are human beings. Uh, and I think the things that nourish the human soul, the things that give us a sense of meaning and purpose in our lives, the things that allow us to connect to a sense of, of, of wonderment and awe, they don't change. Men are men, women are women. We're all just human beings. And it doesn't matter if we're talking about a hundred years ago or a thousand years ago, the things that tend to make human beings whole, that tend to make them happy and fulfilled, that give them a sense of enchantment and joy is the ability to connect ourselves to things and to places and to principles that we passionately believe in. Uh, to causes and to ideas that we consider to be bigger than ourselves. And what I've noticed is that a lot of the, those things are things like having a family, having a spouse, being patriotic, having a faith, having friendships, going to events, engaging the world, reading, learning, growing. All of these things are things that, that, that tend to make us uh, feel like we're complete human beings. Uh, and yet when I, I started to look at how young people spent their time and I started to, to look at the things that they value, uh, the things that tend to fill us in are things that they do not believe in or engage in. Thus, they're, they're hollowed out of the habits and the values that tend to lead, lead to a, a traditionally meaningful life. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes perfect sense. It really does. You know, it's um, it, it's, it's interesting. I, I've, over the last couple of years, I've been focused on uh, really understanding a little bit about the differences between ages. I'm, you know, I'm a former history teacher. I, I've got a couple degrees in history and, and I just love the study of it. And one of the things that's really interesting is, is looking at the group of people in this country that, that fought World War One and, and then especially World War Two, and yeah. how, it became a thing that you just 
you understood you had to do. Exactly. And then that's exactly right. like, it, it's like an underlying assumption. Um, and, and a lot of these assumptions that, 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 you know, you and I make about our country and about our world, that we need to stop assuming these things. I mean, this is why I wrote the book is to give a, a shout out and say, look, a lot of the things, a lot of the changes, a lot of the, the cultural pivots that have happened in the last five to 10 years uh, happened right under our noses and they are profound and they're probably not being noticed by everyday decent Americans. So, you know, you talk about World War II. I remember, you know, I talk about all these moments where kids say things, you are like, well, that's different. I, I was having a conversation uh, since you brought up World War II. I, I wanted to tell you about this discussion with these students who were brilliant. I mean, these are some of my best students and we're talking around uh, we're after school and we're talking about, um, you know, military service. And I said, you know, you know, you would have you would have fought in World War II for your country. And they're like, no, absolutely not. I wouldn't have. And I said, well, wh why not? They're like, why, why would I? Why would I? Why should I? I mean, it's all just relative. I mean, if I was born in Germany, I would have been fighting for the Germans. If I you know, was in the Middle East, I might have I might have been, you know, somehow recruited into an organization that we're fighting against now. And I just, you know, and, and if you just happen to be born here, that doesn't make you any better. So they said, no, we would go to Canada. We would avoid the draft. We wouldn't. Why would we storm the beaches of Normandy? And I remember just being shocked by this, this kind of political relativism, this notion that uh, that there is no justice, there's just power, um, and that everything is a matter of radical subjectivism and perspective. That's really something that they apply to a lot of their, their views of morality, of responsibility, you know, words that we don't use anymore, words like duty. I mean, you hear stories about the World War II generation where you literally had 17-year-olds committing suicide because they could not go fight for their country. And yet nowadays... The military is having a tough time recruiting people to serve in the military, largely because a lot of people don't feel like it's worth defending. It's crazy. It's crazy. By, by the way, did you happen to have a discussion with them about uh, the Canadians fought in World War II? No, no, no. I didn't tell them. Look, the Canadians and the British would have been on those beaches with you, by the way. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but, but, you know, but I think they were thinking more of a kind of a Vietnam, you know, you, you escape to, to Canada if you don't want to fight in, in it. But, but, that, but those assumptions that you and I make that look, Family is a good thing. Friendship is a good thing. America is a good thing. Faith is a good thing. These are assumptions that we need to, that, that young people do not make. Um, they do not make these assumptions at all today. And they have very different views of these traditional aspirations. And, and, and just to kind of put a, a, an exclamation point on it, I think a lot of the people listening to this podcast, the thing that would probably shock them the most is the extent to which young people today live their lives completely untethered to adult responsibilities, adult role models, and adult values. They live their lives largely in isolation. When they communicate, they communicate to, to, with fellow young people. A lot of young people don't have it. You know, you, you and I think, Steve, as the traditional family meal, they don't do that. They're eating alone. They're learning alone. They're socializing alone. And they're just simply not around adults to absorb those values and those expectations of what it means to be an adult of substance and conviction. It's, it's crazy. And it's crazy that uh, this is happening in such a short time. I mean, it's, it's just, there it is. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's just, <laughs> it's kind of a, a shocker when you think about some of the, just the, what's missing there and the, some of the things that we may hold near and dear that somehow didn't get transferred. Well, that's, yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I, it was interesting. My neighbor, I gave an, an early copy of the book to my neighbor who is um, you know, she's somebody who is a little different than me politically. I mean, I'll be honest, I'm, I'm kind of more center right. Um, she's probably, you know, definitely center left. And it was interesting because she said, you know, when I read your book, 
she's like, you know, I, I always just assume that everybody knows how lucky we are to live in the United States of America. I just assume that our kids understand that freedom is precious, that wealth didn't happen on accident, that the Constitution is the exception to the rule of history, um, that, you know, we live in, in, in a society that is perhaps the most dynamic in the history of our species. So I just kind of assumed our kids knew that. And that's an assumption we need to stop making. Uh, young people don't make those assumptions anymore. They don't think that way. Uh, one in five millennials think that the flag is a symbol of hate. Uh, you know, and so really, they look at the country and the history very differently. I know you want to talk about that a little bit more specifically later, but that's an assumption that, that you know, I, I think we need to stop making a lot of these assumptions that, that young people uh, value certain behaviors and institutions because they, a lot of them don't. A lot of them don't. And, and why don't they? Because it's kind of older generation that teaches them, hey, this is responsibility. This is duty. This is obligation. This is how a, a young adult behaves. This is how you talk. This is how you act respectful. But imagine, Steve, if you're not around young people, you're not absorbing those values. You're not absorbing those behaviors. And we're raising an entire generation of young people who have found a way through their technology to spend most of their time in a, in a kind of a digital ecosystem where there are no adult eyes. There's no adult ears. It's kids communicating with other kids all the time, which every, you know, every young generation in the history of the world would have loved to have found like a room in your house where mom and dad can never come and they can never know what's going on there. Right. And every young person would have loved that for thousands of years. Well, guess what? These kids figured out how to do it. Why do you believe a teacher, unlike other important voices in the culture and broader society, is qualified to describe and uniquely qualified to describe why young Americans are hollowed out? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, and in fact, that is kind of the main question in my life uh, right now. As I'm doing a lot of publicity for the book, you know, a lot of people are, are saying, well, why you? Like, why, why are you writing this book? Uh, because probably the central claim uh, of the book is that, look, most of, most of the really ambitious books out there uh, that are saying, look, there's a huge titanic problem coming our way americans and i you know this book needs to shake you and get you to look at it most of the people who write these books are titans of the culture right they're politicians and pundits and instagram influencers and and people who have a humongous platform or people who have their own show or or, or people who are famous journalists for the wall street journal or new york times they are not high school classroom teachers like me um and yet most of the people i know most of the teachers i know will say that we are the ones who have a front row seat to american decline we are the ones who are sitting in the trenches today and want to raise our hands and wave them and say, look, something is not right here. You know, a lot of the values and the behaviors that our young people are exhibiting are, are, are going to doom us in the long run of this country. And, and, the, and, and the parents and the teachers need to wake and the politicians need to wake up. So, uh, so we see, Steve, what other people don't see. And, and the reason for that is we stand at a fascinating intersection of our country. Right. What do we see? We see uh, changes in parental behavior and modes of, of, of parenting their kids. We see the way kids talk. We see how they spend their time. Um, you know, we see the technology they're using. Uh, we, we see that, that we, you know, if they express themselves, we know how, how they're thinking. You know, one of the things I know, I know because you're an educator. One of the things that educators experience all the time is this. You know, you'll read this big article in the Atlantic or the New York Times or something where they're, you know, some famous journalist is declaring how, you know, the kids are feeling anxiety or they're spending nine hours a day on their phone. And most teachers I know look at each other and say, uh, yeah, I knew this two years ago, folks. Uh, time to catch up now. Giddy up. And, uh, and, and that, that, that's essentially, you know, why, why I'm the one. I don't mean Jeremy Adams, but why it is a, it, it has fallen on a school teacher to rouse 
really the concern of the nation and say, folks, by the time this is going to trickle up to you, it's going to be too late. We need to know what these young people are doing and what they're thinking now so that we can start to fix it. Now, I don't know if that makes any sense, but that's why I think it's, it's fallen to a, a mid-career high school teacher to write a book that I think is, is one of the most important books out there. Oh, I think it makes perfect sense. And, I, uh, and, and I'm glad that you're speaking this because it needs to. I mean, it's something that has become more and more apparent. And I think it's funny what you made the comment about. Yeah, if they would have just asked the teachers, they wouldn't have had to do all those studies. All they would have yeah. You know, it's like, forget that, man. You did, you're a little late because. I mean, haven't you, haven't you experienced that? Haven't you experienced that in your career where you you see a big article and you're like, yeah, I, I knew this already. I've seen it. Oh, exactly. I mean, and, and kids have been ever since they've had the technology capabilities. So even going back to, you know, as, as soon as texting started, I mean, oh, yeah. that started, some kids became so good at texting, you know, they could do it without even looking, you know, and it's, <laughs> which used to drive a lot of teachers nuts. And that's when, it, you know, it's kind of starting to take over their world. Because yeah. they figured out yeah. how to uh, make that their focus instead of what they should have been focusing on. Yeah, which again, which I know we're going to talk a little bit more about, but it definitely to say that it's their focus is not even really going far enough. It is their reality. It is their ecosystem. It's where they live their lives nowadays. So got that right. So, uh, so one of the things that you talk about is the 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 impact of a radicalized form of individualism, which you can hear that coming out in what you're talking about. Um, so, what do you mean by this, and what can we do? About uh, yeah, well, what I mean by that is, is, you know, we always talk about how what makes America great is that, that people are seen as individuals, not as members of groups, right? We don't, we don't make assumptions about people based upon immutable characteristics of being a man or a woman or black or white or gay or straight or rich or poor. Like, we don't make assumptions, right? You're an individual. You're free to act and think and be whoever you want to be in accordance with your convictions and your conscience and your tastes and your preferences, right? And so the beauty of America has always been that your, your, your past is only your prologue. It is not a predictor of your future. And we're going to imbue people with freedom so that they can live the lives that they want to live, right? And, and traditionally, what that means is you are free to connect yourselves to places and to people and to things that make your life meaningful, that where you want to believe, where, where you want to live, what you believe in, who you love. So you fall in love and you commit to another human being. You commit to a child. You decide you want to be a teacher today, so you commit to education, you commit to a school, you commit to your students. You decide that you believe in the teachings of the Old Testament, so you commit to being Jewish, or you believe in the divinity of Jesus Christ, and you commit to being a Christian, or, or, or whatever, or you, you, know, you, look at the, you, know, you look at the noble truths of Buddha, and you decide that that is, that is your view of life, and I'm going to commit to, to getting the most out of it by believing in that. Uh, or, or better yet, you know, you, you, you find friends and you say, I will be there for you through thick and thin our whole lives, no matter what, because I have that kind of affection for you. Right. So we always looked at freedom as the freedom to commit to the things that you want to commit to. And those commitments are hard. And let me tell you, my commitment to my wife and my children is hard. My commitment to my students is hard. My commitment to God is difficult. All of these commitments, Steve, are really, really hard. But you know what? They make my life meaningful. They make me happy. Uh, they give me a sense of my, of my place in the world. And what I'm worried about is that young people now see freedom as the freedom to not commit to anything. Right? That, that, and, and what you see is exactly that. Half of all 18 to 35-year-olds today don't have a romantic partner. The desire for marriage and family is in free fall. Uh, you look at depression. Uh, between the year 2007 and 2017, 
uh, depression rose 63%. In the same time, uh, suicide rose 52%. Young people not just are stridently secular uh, and and don't go to church and and aren't religious. And and as a public school teacher, I don't really care if you're religious or not. That is none of my business. But what bothers me is how ridiculously ignorant they are of religion. They don't know. They reject it without knowing anything about it. You know, I had a I had a, a class a number of years ago. Again, we're talking about these moments where you say there's a problem here. We were getting ready to go on spring break, and I talked about the resurrection. And I looked at them, and I said, "How many of you guys know what Easter signifies?" Maybe Steve. Maybe half of them knew what Easter was. They thought it was about you know eggs and bunnies and springtime and cookies. Um, and so they're lonely. Uh, one out of five millennials say they don't have a good friend in the entire world. Um, it used to be that the loneliest generation was always the elderly. Now it's the young. I mean, there is a profound problem in our culture and with our young people, Steve. And it's because they fall into this cult of radical individualism where they feel like their freedom is the freedom to simply indulge myself in whatever I want to indulge myself in. Don't ask me to commit to something that's going to ask a lot of me. I mean, again, they have it in them to commit to some things like they'll have boyfriends or girlfriends. But that's different than being married. You know, they'll have a pet, but they won't have kids. You know, they they want to travel the world, but they, you know, or, or they'll rent, but they don't really want to buy a house. You know, all of their commitments are very thin. Does that make sense? Oh, yes, it does. Yes, it does. And I've had um, seen that firsthand in more ways than, than I care to. But it's, I mean, it's, uh, I got to do is, is come to Georgia, especially in the metro Atlanta area. And you'll see the number of the types of homes that they're emphasizing now are either just stupid unaffordable yeah. <laughs> dollars homes, or there's a type that have no yard, you know, they're, they're, they share walls and uh, they have, you know, so you have no commitment to have to, to deal with all that stuff, like taking care of bushes and, and grass yeah. and stuff like that. And uh, you know, it's uh, and a lot of times, even the property owners take care of the building itself. So it's. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so, that's exactly right. And so, like, I mean, that's why I call it. I mean, I, I believe in individualism. I mean, I think individualism is is is, is what makes uh, kind of our, our, our classical liberal culture great. But there comes a time when it becomes excessive, uh, where, you know, it, it's no longer the freedom to connect to things. It's the freedom to indulge myself. And, and that's what I'm, I'm really, really worried about. I mean, and it's, it's not just that. I mean, you're looking at a generation that kind of has blanket distrust of any institutions. I mean, they, they don't join political parties. They don't join churches. They don't join bowling leagues. Um, you know, a lot of them, they don't want to join a, a, an established business and help it grow. They always want to start their own, which that's great. But it does show this habit of not wanting to, to connect to something bigger than yourself. It's amazing. It's, it, it really is. The, uh, it, and it's all, they, all you got to do is as an adult, open your eyes and realize that, yeah, when you, when you highlight this a lot, and think that it's all wonderful, there's some problems to it. And you're yeah. right on the money with that. Hey, do you need help in becoming more effective at teaching virtual classes? Well, NVTA, the National Virtual Teaching Association, has a semester program that is college accredited and designed to help you become more successful as a virtual teacher. A few of the topics that will be focused on are establishing relationships in the virtual environment, virtual instruction best practices, differentiation in the virtual classroom, and managing virtual resources, among others. NVTA is an affiliate partner with Teaching Learning Leading K-12, and there's so much there to help you be successful in the virtual classroom. Uh, so take a look. Go to my website, stephenmaletto.com slash sponsors. Find the NVTA logo and click on it to take you to their website. Happy learning. On top of this, we throw in 2020. 
<laughs> and yeah, and, it, and it's really yeah. gone away. And it's um, and so how's the pandemic affected young Americans? I mean, do you believe it's going to make the hollowed out phenomenon better or worse? Absolutely going to worse, make it worse. Uh, you know, some people thought that I could have written this book just about what's happened to our kids uh, in the wake. Well, heck, the day that we're taping this, everybody, the CDC came out and said that all vaccinated people need to remask. So I shouldn't say we're, in the, we're, we're beyond it now. I should stop saying we're in the wake of COVID-19. I guess we're still in the midst of it. But, you know, what worries me is that a lot of the, the, the habits that were virtuous, that were good, in the middle of a pandemic, you shouldn't be around other people. Right. And I understand why you needed to learn on a screen. Uh, and I understand why you need you shouldn't be socializing. And I understand why you were isolated. I mean, th these are things in the middle of a pandemic that are virtues. Uh, and I understand why we did it. My worry is that a lot of the things that are virtuous in a pandemic are absolutely inimical. They are the opposite of how you live a meaningful life, which is the opposite. It's getting out of your house. It's engaging one another. It's climbing mountaintops. It's reading books. Uh, it's falling in love. It's, it's finding new interests. It's, it's finding uh, disappointment and, and it, it, it's finding things that you didn't know before. And it's, my point is it's, it's hearty and ambitious engagement with the world. Uh, and that's what we've told these kids the last 18 months. Don't engage the world. Stay in your corner. Stay safe. And again, I have no problem with that. I'm not a, a virologist or an epidemiologist, but I would tell you that that is awful advice in life. Um, get out of your house. It's so, you know, be vulnerable. Fall in love. Read a book. You, you know, go read War and Peace. Go climb a mountain you never thought you would. Um, and, and yet that's not what you're seeing. And not only that, I actually see, um, I, I just had a, an op-ed in, in the LA Times on Saturday called The Rise of the Zombies. And it, it, what it was about was my, my fear of the long-term, which I observed in summer school. I had a, a small group of students this summer. They were nice enough kids. Uh, we were all masked. We were all distanced. But they hadn't been in school for 18 months, and they were like zombies. They were chilled out. They were mellow. Um, I taught a three-week class in world history. Do you know how many classes on history I got from the kids? How many questions they asked just because they were curious about the subject or history itself? Guess how many questions I got None. in three weeks? None. Zero. None. Not a single question about history. Uh, they, you know, they were absolutely, it's like they were, they were, you know, kind of bereft of any passion. And then, you know, what's, what's really disturbing is, you know, anybody who's taught in the classroom for a long time knows that if you give the kids any extra time, they're just going to chat and talk and be loud and gossip and flirt, right? Right. Not anymore, man. That's not what happened. I would have five minutes at the end of the day, and guess what would happen? Instead of being loud or boisterous or talking or gossiping, silence. Wow. Silence. The kids would go to their phones because that's what they've been doing, and they would just self-medicate on the phones, and they would just swipe and watch and play and not talk to one another and not engage me. Uh, and it's, it's alarming. That, you know, that's, uh, that is alarming, especially because that whole focus on the, the virtual world. I mean, like, you know, like we're inside our own TV show or something like this. I like what you just said. It's almost like uh, self-medicating <laughs> or whatever you want to yeah. call it, where there's really no, there's no interaction. There's no uh, engagement. Connection. Yeah, nothing, yeah. Nothing there. That's, that's a, it's a wild thought. I, I just can't imagine what that was like teaching a, a history class. Well, it was, it was hard because, you know, usually I have, I have a, you know, I, I kind of feel like, I know my children tell me I'm not, but I think I'm funny. I think I, I think I can bring the funny to a class pretty well. You know, and I have, you know, a lot of stories I've collected over the years that 
that I know are humorous. And so, you know, if the class is kind of dead or I can link it to a funny story, I, I think humor is one of the best, absolute best tricks that teachers have. And I tried it a few times this summer. Oh my gosh. I now know what it's like to do stand-up comedy and it's like silence and you're just bombing. I mean, like these are, these are stories that have been hilarious for years. And the kids just look at me like I'm a freak show. Like, I don't get why is that funny? Why is that funny? You know? And, and like, it, it, it's really disorienting. And it, frankly, I mean, as somebody who I've always felt like I can move a classroom, I've always felt like I can control the kids to a certain degree and kind of get them into things or get them interested or engage them. I kind of feel like Superman who's lost his cape. I mean, I just, I just can't fly anymore. Uh, and, and I'm sure maybe it's just because I'm getting old and cranky and a curmudgeon, maybe. Okay. A little bit of that. But I think it's, it, but I think the, the, you know, the fact that they've been gone from a classroom for 16 months and no longer how to know how to engage one another and are perpetually manically looking at their dang screens all day has a lot more to do with it. Uh, only a third of teenagers today favor face-to-face -face interaction as a way of socialization. One third, that's it. And that's, again, that's a sudden change. Uh, back in 2013, over half of teenagers favored that. Now it's, it's less than a third, just eight years later. Yeah, you know, so Jeremy, you know, one of the things that uh, you write about, we've we've talked about this just a little bit. We've touched on it a couple different times. We've we've gotten there. You write a lot about how young people struggle to be patriotic in a way previous generations never did. I mean, why do you think that it is and what do you think we can do about it? I think is really what we need to do because we we touched on this a little bit and uh, uh let's kind of go there. Well, you know, we're we're kind of in the midst today uh, this summer of this really rambunctious national debate about critical race theory. Uh, and you know, there's like a big fight about what it is and what it isn't and who's trying to use it and how are they trying to use it? And is, is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? And what is its outcome? I, I think at the end of the day, the, the problem is, you know, when, when I look at young people and the way that they look at the country, uh, they look at it radically different than older Americans, right? So I found a statistic that was, that I think really clarified the difference. The silent generation, you know, kind of really kind of the elderly in this country, 94% of them have uh, believe that America has a history that they should be proud of. Whereas, you know, one in five millennials see the flag as, as a symbol of hate. And there's this broad gap of, you know, are you proud to be a, an American? And I think it's the way that we look at our, our history, right? And so the, the way that I, what I would say is that, first of all, young people want to be fashionable. They want to be hip. They want to be chic. And it's really fashionable right now to hate your country. It just is. Um, and, which, and, and I think a lot of young people see that it's, you know, you're an old person, you're a boomer, you are silly if you're really patriotic or you're just ignorant about our history. Um, and of course, that's just absolutely not true. I mean, the, the studies are very clear. Young people today know less history and less about our constitution than any generation in American history. That's why, you know, one of the things you hear today is some young people are like, will say, well, do the work, do the work. It's like, don't you tell me to do the work. You don't know anything. You know, you can't even tell me who the first three presidents are. Don't tell me to do the work. Older Americans have a much more thorough view of American history and our constitutional structure than young people. Um, and, and so, you know, young people, I, so I think it's part of it is, is you, you want to kind of be in sync with the rest of your generation, how they look at the country. Um, but, but the question is, well, why is that? Where, where did that come from? Uh, and, and I think that not only do, you know, what young people do know about history 
is not particularly great. Um, you, there's no denying that the United States of America has a very problematic history. There are a lot, a lot, a lot of things in our history to not be proud of that are antithetical to our founding documents, to our aspirations, to our belief in natural law and universal human justice. Uh, there are a lot of episodes. And, and, and I think what you have is this belief that America, like what is America? Well, America is the, you know, we are these awful things we did in the past. You know, we are the trail of tears. We are this servitude. We are segregation. We are uh, all of these things that we did. And older Americans will say, well, no, we, those, those things happen and we should acknowledge them and we should learn. But the reason we feel proud of the country is because what we did with it, right? And so, yes, we had human slavery, but then we had the 13th Amendment. That makes us proud. Yes, we had segregation, but then we had the 1964 Civil Rights Act, the 65 Voting Rights Act, the 24th Amendment, and Martin Luther King's dream. That's what we're proud of, right? Yes, we had all of these things that we, we haven't done right in the country, but we're proud because we corrected it. We moved on. We improved. We took injustice and turned it into justice. You know, we, we, you, you look at the, these terrible moments, like in Charlottesville or in Minneapolis last summer, there's almost 100% universal agreement that we are on the side of equal treatment of people regardless of race. Everybody, almost everybody in this country is offended when the law is not being applied equally regardless of somebody's background. That is progress. There's almost universal agreement on that. So, you know, people are proud because we are a country that will take to the streets when that's not happening. We are proud uh, when, we, when, when we started at A and moved on to B. And so that's how older people look at it. And that's why older people are proud um, is because not that we have a perfect history, but because of the improvements we've made and because of the idealism and the exceptionalism of where we started. It's so powerful because that's, it's one of the things that is just, it's just crazy. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, we think about, uh, I mean, not so long ago. I mean, I, um, when I trained uh, in my time, I, you know, I, served. I was an officer, finished up as a, in the army. I finished up as a captain. And, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, we trained then was to, uh, um, to deal with the threat. And the threat was the term that was used for the uh, communist bloc nations, um, like the Soviet Union and communist China, and especially the North Koreans, um, because they had in their midst the ability, they wanted to, you know, eliminate the U.S. as a thriving country. Right. And the um, as an opponent, you know, it's, and it's, it's just interesting how there's totally no understanding of like things that we teach the purges that Stalin did. And, you know, oh, yeah. uh, just any number of things, what the Japanese did to the Chinese. And we, we mixed it up there before the, the world war two. And, you know, it's, uh, there's go ahead. I'm, no, no, what you're, no, you're, what you're saying is so right, which is, you know, that, that, I, I, this is the thing that, you know, I, I think you can tell there are a lot of things that frustrate me. <laughs> Some of the things that they say and do, even though I, I really do love my, my, my students a lot. I, I, I think the world of them in many ways. And in some ways, I think they do things better than older Americans do in, in, in some ways. But, but the thing there, the, the, the biggest blind spot of this generation where they are, I would say, uniquely bad is they, they seem to have no capacity for understanding that people who live in a different time could have a completely different worldview than them. And the fact that they have a different worldview than them does not make them evil. 
does not mean that there are not things about them that we shouldn't celebrate. I mean, people in 2021 look at 2015 like it was the dark ages. Um, you know, how can you expect somebody in 1776 or 1787 or 1865 to have the same moral, political, economic, or even religious values as you have in 2021? Um, you know, be very careful about judging a little harshly the people who can't fight back because 200 years from now, we're going to look like barbarians. Um, and, and, and it takes a tremendous amount of, I mean, Steve, it takes so much work to really understand a historic person the way that they understood themselves, right? That takes a tremendous amount of work. So, you know, all of these, these people who we love to, to denigrate, and, and I'm not saying, by the way, that there's not things that are not problematic about them. There are. Um, I mean, I, I struggle with, you know, somebody who I've, I revered, Thomas Jefferson, and I do struggle. I do struggle when you, the more you learn about him. I do struggle with that. But, but there's a difference between saying that because, you know, because they, they did one thing wrong or whatever, that means that the things they did right shouldn't be celebrated. And, and that's, that's the thing that, that, that really bothers me is, is that we believe that people have to be perfect from a 2021 lens in order to elevate and celebrate anything about them. And if that's your standard, you're not going to be celebrating anybody. Uh, because uh, we're never going to, you know, we're never going to stand up to the standards of today if you lived in a different time ever. Um, think about it. The founding fathers, they were all on the other side. I mean, they're on the other side of the Industrial Revolution. They're on the other side of the Grand Canyon of, of Freud and Nietzsche and Marx. They're on the other side of two world wars and the Cold War and the, and, and the technological revolution. I mean, so from 2021 to look back and to just say it's all bad and garbage, I, and that's what a lot of young people do. They think there's nothing valuable to learn from people back then who made, you know, mistakes as we see them today. Uh, you know, one of the things that we got to talk about is a lot of people lament the devices and social media usage of young Americans. But aren't cell phones just this generation's TV or Walkman or Nintendo? Which, by the way, I think. Well, I, I, I mean, I, I would say absolutely not. I, I think it's I think it's far worse. Um, you know, you don't. When you look at um, when you look at TV or radio uh, from ages past, first of all, there's just the co time component. Young people today spend far more time on their devices than they ever spent watching TV or radio. Um, and the problem is that when you're spending nine or ten hours a day on your device, you're usually in isolation. Uh, you're usually in your house. You're not, and it displaces a lot of the things that, that, like I said, give life its meaning and its purpose and a lot of its happiness and it's fun. You know, when you're on your phone nine or 10 hours a day, that means you're not dating, you're not reading books, you're not going to the movies, you're not going to football games. I come from a, I, I teach at a high school that is big on football. And for my entire life, you had to get there early on a Friday night to get a seat. And I've noticed the last five or 10 years, you can show up in the middle of the game and half of the seats are empty. People aren't going to football games. And when I ask the kids, why aren't you going? They say, well, you know, they sound like they're 50 years old. They're like, well, I'm kind of tired at the end of a long week. And I, and I say, well, don't you want to hang out with your friends? And they say, of course, we want to hang out with our friends. We are. And I said, well, how, but you're not at the football game. They're like, yeah, but, but we're all together on, on the phones. You know I mean? We're, 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 we're on a platform together. You know, we're hanging out. I mean, I've, I, I remember a few years ago, my daughter had a, a, a birthday party here and, you know, you used to have these teen gatherings and they'd be rambunctious and rowdy and loud and crazy. Nowadays, they're quiet, man. They're quiet. Uh, and I remember going in there and into her room, and there are five or six teenage girls just on their phones silently, not talking to each other silently. I've seen people dating. They're out at a restaurant, and they're looking at their phones. They're not talking to one another. Um, you, you know, And so 
all of these these gatherings, uh, you know, really are 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 being displaced by the phones. Um, and you know, the other thing I would say is, I'm not smart enough to tell you if the cell phones and the devices are causing the mental health crisis. You know, I don't know if it's causation or you know or correlation. But I'll tell you right now, people who spend a long time on their devices are not happy people. Um, if you think about it, one of the problems that we have in our with a social media culture is that we believe that for anything to be really valuable, for a moment to have real purpose or importance, it has to be watched by other people, right? That that a moment is gathers its own uh, value based upon the number of likes that other people have of that moment that you had, how much commentary you get, how many you know watches uh, or views or retweets, and so you have moments that should just be fun on their own. I'm at a, I'm on a mountaintop with my boyfriend or my girlfriend, but yet. That's not enough. Now I have to take a picture of it, post it, and then I feel worse about the moment two days later when I realize nobody liked it. And I'm wondering why. You know, a lot of these young people, you know, they weaponize social media where, you know, they'll, they'll invite a few friends over to a party and one of their friends who they're fighting with, they won't invite. And so they put it all over Instagram, knowing that the kid that they're trying to punish will watch it and feel bad that they weren't invited. And so this is nothing like TV or radio. It is an ecosystem that only the kids can live in. You know, my middle child had a great quote when I was writing the book, and I might have even made it in the book or not. I was talking about how, you know, adults can't keep up with young people and, and, and their technology. And she said, you know, if you don't start off with this technology, if you try and catch up or you try and learn it, you will lose every time. You know, these young people have, uh, you know, we think that we're being good parents when, you know, we, we make sure we're following our child's Instagram account when they probably have three or four Instagram accounts called Finsta or spam accounts where they're posting edgy, vulgar, uh, you know, more sexual content uh, that, that would t- totally offend their mom or their dad. They know how to hide it. We can't find things on their phones. They are light years. They are quantum leaps in front of us when it comes to the technology usage. And they are seeing things and communicating in ways that we would never let them do if, they, if it was in a normal situation in your house or in your school, but they can hide it. Um, and so like, there's, there's a quote in the book by a dean from in Arkansas, and this dean was talking about how you know, sometimes he confiscates phones, and he says the filth, the vulgarity, the violence, the disgusting things that I see on 14-year-old devices. He's like, if the parents knew the extent of how... Like just the, the, the enormity of the filth, they would be utterly shocked. And yet let's not pretend that what they see doesn't affect their value system, how they communicate, how they look at relationships. And, and again, this is also about politics as well. I said a minute ago, most of the things they see on social media about American, American history is not positive. It's negative. Uh, it, it's about, it's about, you know, it, it's, it's, it's snarky. Um, it's pessimistic. It's biting. It's jaded. Um, and, and so this, and yet this is the place where they live. No wonder they're miserable. No wonder they're hollowed out. So no, Steve, this is nothing like Nintendo. It's pretty, it's pretty wild. You know, it's, it's pretty wild because, you know, one of the things that I, I, I think about the things that could consume my time in those days and what I could be distracted by, you know, it's just so different. <laughs> and it's part, yeah. re- it's part of the reason why I do get tired of the, the stuff with the phone. And so what I'll do is I'll just... I'll put it away and, and someone will say, well, I texted you or I, I called you or, and you haven't responded yet. And I'll go, I know. <laughs> you know so. Yeah. I, it's on purpose that way. <laughs> Try it yourself. 
Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, um, you've talked about, it, it comes out loud and clear, is that you do have a great deal of affection for the kids that you work with and, and you admire them in many ways. What do you think they get right that older Americans might not appreciate? A few things. First of all, you know, one of the things that frustrates me about the, you know, they'll say I'm not patriotic or I don't think America is exceptional or, you know, we, you know, I'm embarrassed to be an American. And yet their definition of justice is thoroughly American, right? I mean, they are people who believe in the values of the Enlightenment. They are people who believe in the values of the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights of the uh, of the the Gettysburg Address of Martin Luther King's dream. I mean, this is classical American liberal, classical liberal culture, and they believe in it. You know, when when they march in the streets, they're marching for an American view of justice. They're, they're marching for natural law. They're they're marching for inalienable rights. Uh, and so it's weird that they have a thoroughly American view of justice, and yet they're the most unlikely to profess a love for America. And so, I mean, I, I do think that, you know, they, they're not particularly culturally relativistic. I mean, they will tell you that there are, they're interesting because they believe in political morality, but not individual morality, right? They believe that there are absolutes when it comes to injustice. Like it is wrong to treat people differently on the basis of race, right? And, and, and which is true because, and I think it's true because I believe in natural law. Uh, I, I believe in, 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 you know, the Declaration of Independence, which says we get our rights, not from a king or from popular consent or a sovereign. We get them from God and nature's God. Therefore, I don't get to decide what is and is not right. Uh, this is justice. And, and young people believe in that kind of justice. So it's interesting that they, they, they have less love for the country while they believe that the basic philosophy of the country is absolutely right. Don't even question it. Right. And I, and I love that they have that thoroughly American view of, of, of history. Um, and of their country. I also think that, you know, they're, they are ambitious. Um, you know, some of the things I said, you know, as I've mentioned before, even some of the things they do that I don't like, like all the, all the taking down of the, uh, some of the statues. I mean, I think they are trying to really right the ship. They are, they're absolutely not going to tolerate bigotry. They are not going to tolerate sexism. They're not going to tolerate homophobia. They're not going to tolerate racism. And I, I, I love that. Um, you know, they, they are a country that thoroughly believes that tomorrow is going to be better than today. And also, they they are ambitious when it comes to changes. I mean, they they're not afraid of taking on something like you know climate change or global warming or whatever you want to call it. And whatever wherever you stand on the issue, we can all agree it's a big issue and it's going to require profound changes to the way that we live our lives. And they're ready to do it. And they're also willing to sacrifice their dietary standards, the way they live their lives, to do it. And I I admire that about them very very much. So for all of these things, I I think in some ways you know they they really are going to make profound strides in the kind of, you know, real equality that we're talking about in this country. Um, and, 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 I, and I do like their idealism. I do. And they're just nice kids, by the way. I mean, by and large, you know, they're, they're nice. Um, they're, they're, they're pleasant uh, to be around. I, again, I don't, sometimes I don't get their humor, like I said, but, um, but, but they, are, they are pretty fun to be around. Nice. I like that. That's, that's good. Uh, you know, um, Jeremy, I got to ask you this. It, it, let's, let's go into a scenario here. If you were asked to speak about your book to a group of educators, so you're talking about hollowed out, a warning about America's next generation. What is something that you would want them to remember and think about as they left your talk? I think there are a few things uh, that, that we need to do. I mean, obviously, the opposite of, of, of being hollowed out is filling in. And I think that I would tell educators is it is okay to emphasize 
the habits, the behaviors, and the values that tend to fill in uh, a life and, and make it meaningful and 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 happy. Um, you know, I think that a lot of the adults in our society, I think we have an obsession with youth. I think we infantilize everything. I think adults need to start adulting. Be in the physical and moral and emotional space of our young people. Start telling them, this is what it looks like to be a good man or a good woman in the world. Show them what it means to be an adult and show them that being an, a good adult is a road to happiness. Yes, it's responsibility and yes, it's duty and yes, it's obligation. And yes, it means you don't get to stay up all night, but it also means love and it means faith and it means compassion and it means friendship and it means, you know, purpose. They're all kinds of great things. So, I, you know, I would say the adults need to start adulting. Now, as we've focused on a lot, we need to tell our young people, you can be, being patriotic does not mean that you think your country is perfect. Being patriotic does not mean that you think your country's history is not hugely problematic. You can be patriotic to a very imperfect country. The third thing I would say uh, is that it is more important to get the license than it is the car keys. Uh, a lot of young people, they just want freedom to go do whatever it is they want to do. But I think one of the mistakes we've made in our society is we've given young people freedom without the wisdom to teach them how to use their freedom well. So make sure they get the license, not just the car keys. Uh, and, and then finally, the last thing, and this is kind of my teacher uh, hat, is I think you know a lot of the things that we've done the last 10 years in education are good. I, I, I like the fact that I believe that students do need to have a safe space, that they do need to feel secure, that if they're not being fed at home, we should be feeding them at school. Um, I do believe that those things are good, but I think that we need to remember that we're doing it in order, you know, students need to feel fed and secure in order for us to pivot and then set high expectations and tell them, here's what you are expected to do. Uh, here are the skills you're supposed to learn. Here's the knowledge you need to have. And, 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 just, and just because, you know, you're having a bad day or just because, um, you know, you're having, uh, there are issues in your life doesn't mean that we can't somehow expect you to have these, these high achievements uh, that, that, and, and I, I find, frankly find it to be disturbing to say, well, just because, you know, you come from poverty or just because you come from a difficult background, I'm not going to ha ha have high expectations for you. I think that is parasitic and toxic. Uh, you should have high expectations for everybody. Now, if some kids need more emotional or uh, material support, we should give it to them. But that doesn't mean that that's where the story of education ends. So I would say, you know, stop being so therapeutic. We need to go back to being academic as well. Oh, I love that. <laughs> I love that. That is, I think that is right on the money. Cause that's one of the things that uh, I had just, I just really bothers me the most is it's like, well, what are you talking about? We need to, you know, scale back or do this, that no, no, there's, I mean, they're, they're human beings. They can, they can do a lot of stuff. If yes. You help yes. Them, uh, get that comfort zone happen. And, and uh, so that they're not worried about where their next meal's coming from and they got that happening. Well, then let's move on and let's do, because who knows what they can achieve if they got that, if you push them that way, because if you do the opposite of it, yeah, then. Well, then, I, I, I heard somebody say recently, you know, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, there really is only, you know, the most important thing in all teachers is do kids feel like a teacher believes in them, believes that they can make of their lives what they want it to be. And, uh, you know, George W. Bush, and I know some people probably don't like him, and I have my own reservations on his presidency, but he did talk about the soft bigotry of low expectations. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I do believe that, you know, we should have high expectations for everyone. Now, I think we should be understanding that it's going to be harder for some kids to achieve it than others. And I think that some kids are going to need more support than others. And I, and I, I have no problem saying that schools uh, should have what we call wraparound services to do that. But you're right. 
you're right. You have to still believe in your kids, even if, even if they have, you know, some hurdles uh, in front of them. Good stuff. The, uh, you know, uh, Jeremy, I can't thank you enough for sharing your book, Hollowed Out, a warning about America's next generation. Uh, before we go, if someone wanted to connect further with you, where would you send them? Uh, feel free to follow me on Twitter. I'm at uh, Jeremy Adams six, capital J, capital A, Jeremy Adams six on Twitter. Uh, on Instagram, I am Jeremy, J-E-R-E-S Adams, uh, 1976. Uh, and that's on Instagram. Um, and, uh, you know, feel free to, to follow me on there. I'm not somebody who I pretty much just kind of, I post a little bit about my family, but typically uh, it's about, uh, you know, my writing and my, and my book and educational stuff. And I, and I don't, you know, I don't, I'm not a prolific person on there. I do it when it's important or it's interesting, or I have some news to share. So I'd, I'd love to have some followers. Very cool. So I'll make sure those are in my show notes. And I got one more question I want to ask you. And it has to do with the times and, and where we are, because you are definitely a speaker and you've got some thoughts about this and you are, and you are a teacher in the classroom, which is really cool too. And so you're not writing these books from uh, some mountain on high. Um, you're in there working with the kids. And, you know, what a, if you're as a speaker, you know, one of the things that bothers me the most about coming out of this, you know, whether it's really over with or not, I don't know. But yeah. The yeah. point is, is that school and life have to go on and we've got to figure out how to move ourselves forward no matter what's going on. And, and so, there's lots of teachers out there that uh, they're getting ready to, to start the new school year, the fall of 2021 and the, you know, the school year 21, 22. And I think some of them need to have that kind of that injection of passion back into them, that it's okay to be passionate about what they're doing and working with the kids. And, uh, you know, if you had a chance to talk to this massive audience of, of teachers getting ready to, to go teach right before that first day, what would you tell them? I think my message uh, to the, all those teachers would be that every year your kids need you, but there are some years that are going to be more pressing than others. Uh, and, and I think that uh, if I was going to have a powerful message, if I wanted to punctuate something, I would say that more teachers are going to have the most important year of their teaching careers this year than any other in the history of our country. Let's put it that way. Uh, you know, I, I, I might not be as young as I used to be. I might not be as patient as I used to be. Uh, but these kids are going to really need to be shepherded back to a place where they know what a, a, a normal classroom looks like. I mean, let's let's not mince words. Uh, my students are very honest about what they've been doing the last year and a half. You know, they, they turn off their cameras on a Zoom call because they don't want to see what they're, what, I'm, what they're doing. They're in bed. They're in their pajamas. They're texting each other back and forth. Uh, they're watching, you know, they're watching Netflix or Disney Plus as class is going on. When they're taking tests, we all know that they don't have to study. They can cheat like crazy. Um, we, again, we all know that, that, that that's not a good learning environment and it's going to be rough for them the next year. So your students always need you, but they will probably need you more than they ever have before. And make sure you're ready for it. Even if we're in a mask, even if we're distance, um, even if we're behind glass, be ready for it. Love that message. That's awesome. And uh, Jeremy, it was so ama amazing catching up with you today. Your book, Hollowed Out, A Warning About America's Next Generation, um, is a message that is much needed and should be focus of all our conversations. I thank you for bringing this topic to the table for discussion. Wishing you the best and looking forward to our next talk. Thank you so much, Steve. Thank you. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right.
here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.